In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. There isn't anything that exists that was made apart from him. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. And the true light that gives light to every person was coming into the world. This morning we wrap up our series on the first three chapters of John's biography of Jesus and his historical narrative of Jesus' ministry. And in those three chapters, two men are the primary focus of the story. Two men whose lives overlap in time and in purpose. Two men, two men whose hearts could not be more similar and yet whose natures could not be more different. John, the last in a long line of prophets that began all the way back in Old Testament times, Jesus, the Messiah that those prophets promised. Jesus, who in John 1.9 is called the light, and John, who in John 5.35 is called the lamp. Through most of these chapters, as you know, if you've been with us during the series or you have uh, read the gospel before, Jesus is the main focus. But as we come to the end of chapter 3 and to the end of this series, both John and Jesus come back into view. So let's turn to chapter 3 in John's gospel we will begin in, in verse 22 and go through to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. Now, an argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one that you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. You can hear the tension in their voice, can't you? Maybe hurt, maybe Fear, certainly some jealousy. Jesus' ministry is on the ascendancy. John's disciples are watching nervously as the crowd begins to look over John's shoulder to this Jesus who is on the rise. Some even shifting their allegiance to him. Everybody is going to him instead of coming to us, they caution. They are anxious that Jesus is eclipsing, even undermining their own teacher's eminence and significance. We know from John chapter 1, verse 40, that it isn't just crowds of onlookers who are turning their attention to Jesus. Even one of John's own disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, has left John, no longer being his disciple, and has gone to become one of Jesus' followers. 
You hear jealousy and fear in John's followers, but not in John. Listen to his reply. What troubles them delights John. Yes, he as much as says. That is just what God intended, and I couldn't be happier. Verse 27. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce paraphrases this Hebrew idiom in this way. Each person has his allotted calling or ministry that comes from God, and his job is to fulfill that, whatever it is. So John is clear about who gets to, to, to determine his life calling. As the New Living Bible, or as the Living Bible puts it, God in heaven appoints each man's work. Have you ever thought to ask God what his calling on your life is? What is God's work for you? Our world likes to tell us that our vocation, our calling, is completely up to us. It's ours to choose. And we can do anything that we put our minds to. And then once we've done whatever it is we put our mind to, we can kick back and relax at retirement and the rest of our lives belong to us. But the Bible offers us a really different perspective about calling and vocation. God in heaven appoints each one's work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that God has prepared good works in advance for us to walk in. So regardless of how old you are or what stage of life you find yourself in, what if you were to ask God what his calling on your life is at this point in your life? What are those good works that God has prepared in advance for you specifically to walk in? John goes on then. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but am sent ahead of him. I'm not the one in whom my followers should put their trust, John is saying. I'm not the one who will meet all of their needs. I'm not the one in whom God's purposes are fulfilled. I'm not, I'm not the one that they can't do without. No, John says, but I know the one who is and who does. My calling is not about me at all. It's not about putting myself or keeping myself at the center in a world that is all about self-promotion, my ambition is simply to fulfill God's purposes in this world, not to seek my own glory. I'm only here to prepare the way for another. I'm not the destination. I just pave highways towards it. This word behind the expression, uh, being sent ahead of him, is the familiar word, apostle. The word was sort of a technical term in biblical times. It was a term that was used to describe someone who was appointed and sent by someone else on that person's behalf to carry out their business. They were given a commission, a co-mission, and they served as an agent or a representative representing that person in the work that they did. John says he is one of those agents of God, a sent one on commission with God. Later in the gospel, that same word will be used by Jesus to describe all of us. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus prays for all of those who follow him, not just the immediate group of followers with him in the moment, but all those who will ever follow him, including all of us. John 17, 18, he prays, Father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Same word. We also are his agents and his representatives. We also are called to carry out a commission on his behalf. 
I am not God's answer to the world, but I get to serve the one who is. So while John's followers are miffed that people are looking past John to Jesus, John himself is delighted. He understands that as the fulfillment of every person's calling. So to express the depths of the joy that he feels, he shifts the metaphor. He isn't just any agent serving on behalf of any person. His joy isn't that of, say, an envoy representing a king or a worker doing business on behalf of a business owner. He is like the best man whose commission it is to carry off the perfect wedding. John chapter 3, verse 29, he introduces this, this marriage symbolism. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. And that joy is mine and it's now complete, he says. The role of a best man in an ancient wedding was much more comprehensive than it is for us today. Today, if you're someone's best man, probably the most that you have to do is make sure that nobody loses the wedding license or the rings and maybe arrange for a bachelor party. But in ancient times, the best man was the master of ceremonies. His job was to see that every part of the wedding went well. Sometimes he was actually involved in the, in the negotiating of the hand of the bride on the groom's behalf. He often contributed financially to the cost of the wedding. He was the one who arranged the processions that would take place, first bringing the groom and then bringing the bride together in the place where the ceremony uh, took place. And throughout the ceremony, he stood right beside the groom to serve him in whatever way that groom might need. And on top of all of that, he was the chief witness to the exchange of vows and the promising of hearts. Have any of you seen Steve Martin's version of the father of the bride? Think of Frank. <laughs> this is what I suggest, so that we can make a spectacle or a fabulous wedding. Okay, maybe we should think of Frank. But that is essentially the role that John had. So let's take a look closer at what John says. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. I think this little expression says so much about the deepest heart allegiance that John has. It's a fascinating little window onto how his heart stirs. The best man would never dream of vying with the groom for the affections of the bride. This is especially relevant for anybody who serves in any capacity in the life of the church. When leaders lead, they stand at the center of things. And it would be so easy to conclude that everything is about them, that it pivots on them, that they are the most important person in the room. But that simply isn't true. John insists that Jesus is the primary actor in the redemptive drama. And he, John, is, is merely the foremost witness to the work that God is doing. He just gets to sit in the front row seat and watch God do it and then go and tell others about it. Because I am clear about my relationship with him, John says, I am also clear about my relationship with you, those who I lead. It would be a travesty if you, the bride, fell in love with me, the bridegroom's friend. I want your eyes to be on him. Your heart's first attachment should be to him and not to me. John says the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him. 
He is saying, my life isn't ultimately about me. My worth and my value, my significance and my purpose is tied directly to Jesus and his work in this world. It is his name on the lips of others, not mine, that I am most eager to hear. My joy is found in his reputation and not in mine. When I walk out of the room, I want people to be talking about Jesus and not about me. My ambition is to fulfill God's purpose as Jesus's witness and forerunner, not to seek my own glory. So I am free not to be defined by your love for me or your lack of it, John is saying. I'm not driven to gain your approval or your affection, and I'm not devastated when you criticize me or disapprove of me or, or leave me for others. My focus isn't on me, and yours shouldn't be on me, my, on me either. My focus is on him. My eyes are on him, waiting for his signal. My ears are turned to his voice, ready to respond to his call. My life is surrendered to his purposes. So who or what is your life ultimately about? <clears throat> Clearly, John's life mission has shifted at this point in his ministry. He no, no longer goes ahead of Jesus. Now he comes behind him as his follower. And he gives us a beautiful, beautiful picture of what that looks like. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. What a description of the Christian life. And that joy is mine and it is now complete. The word joy just dances through these words. John says he rejoices with joy and he says that his joy is filled full when Jesus steps into the room and the eyes of the bride turn to him. My life's greatest joy isn't about me at all, he is saying. It's all about him and what he is doing in this world. I'm all about bringing God and his people together. My one concern is their relationship with him and his relationship with them. My greatest joy is to see the bride find joy in the bridegroom and to see that love reciprocated in his eyes. What is your life's greatest joy? All of this leads up to the, the wonderful and profound summary line from John, which I think significantly is the last line that John quotes from John the Baptist in his gospel. It's translated in different ways, and each of these translations express the same basic idea. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must become greater, but I must become less. He must become more important while I become less important, he must move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. They all communicate the same idea. Jesus is more important than me, and he comes ahead of me. Where is your joy found? What is your deepest ambition? Who or what is the defining center of your life? Whose reputation is your life most concerned with? Who or what is the most important thing of all in your life? Augustine says, 
There are two kinds of loves in the end. There is a love of God that leads to a forgetfulness of self, and there is a love of self that leads to a forgetfulness of God. Which kind of love defines your life? Ronald Knox was a Catholic priest and a writer in the middle of the last century. He uh, translated the Bible from the Vulgate Latin into um, English and sort of contemporary English. He was also a wonderful mystery writer, uh, by the way. And in the foreword of his Bible translation, there is this wonderful description that he writes of John's life and ministry. Everyone is crowded around St. John, everybody wanting to know who he is. And he will let them see nothing but the finger that points to a greater than himself. He will let them hear nothing but the voice of the forerunner who preaches a gospel, not his own. What would it look like for your life and mine to be nothing but a finger that points to a greater than yourself? Oh, my Lord, that I might be but an arrow that points to thee. Before we go on, I just want to invite you to give yourself in, perhaps in a new way or maybe in a deeper way, to the work of witness this morning. To take your place, to determine to take your place alongside John as one whose greatest joy is to point past yourself in your words, in your actions, in the way that you spend your time, in the way that you use your resources and your gifts, in the way that you carry out your calling to point past yourself to a greater than yourself. What is something that could change in your life right now to make that more of a reality? What is the step that you could take this week to decrease your own importance in your life, so that your life could more fully point to him. As we turn to the last six verses, which I want to do just briefly, John the disciple takes our eyes off of the lamp, just as, as John the forerunner would wish that he would, and puts them back squarely on Jesus the light. And it's not clear whether these words we're about to read are the words that John the Baptist is speaking or words that John the disciple is speaking, but it doesn't really matter. With these words, John knits together this whole first part of his gospel, these first three chapters, and he leaves all of us as readers and hearers at a decision point. I want to read these verses and then I'll paraphrase what I believe that they're saying. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and he speaks as one from the earth, but the one who comes from above is above all. And he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. But whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. So here's the basic idea. There are two realms of existence. There is the supernatural realm with God at its center, and then there is the physical realm with all of its occupants. A physical realm that 
finds its source in God, that originated with God and exists because of God. And we as earthbound residents, we can only guess at what is true about that other realm. But Jesus is God coming to us from that other realm. And he comes with exclusive spiritual authority. And he has that authority for two reasons. First, he has the authority of experience. Speaking of what he himself knows and has been part of eternally since long before the moment of creation. And he closes the infinite distance between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, coming to us as an expert on heaven because it is his realm. But secondly, he comes with the authority of divinity. Eternally one with the Father in the Spirit. God the Son is loved by the Father and in love is sent by the Father and empowered by God the Spirit as he comes on his rescue mission to the world. And he is given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he rules over all and everything has been placed in his hands. When we human beings in this physical realm accept his message, when we believe in him, then we are made citizens of that other realm. We are brought into that other world's life. We no longer belong to this realm, but now belong to that other realm. And then, as long as we remain here on earth, we, like John, are part of the, the validation of the truth of the word that God spoke when he sent his son. And when we do not accept his message, when we deny his divine authority, when we reject his heavenly or his divine identity, when we reject his heavenly authority, we place ourselves outside of that other realm. We also stand outside of God's forgiveness and his new life. And by refusing to accept him, we choose to accept God's just judgment for us instead. To what do you give final authority in your life? Who or what rules over you? Where do you stand in relationship to that other realm? What is your response this morning to God's invitation for you to experience eternal life in Christ by accepting him and his authority in your life? Well, during this series, we have unfolded a number of beautiful metaphors that Jesus used to help us understand who he is and why he came. Jesus is the word who communicates the heart of God to the world. Jesus is the ladder who opens up access to heaven. Jesus is the wine who brings joy and blessing to thirsty souls. Jesus is the temple in whom we draw near to God and God draws near to us. And Jesus is the breath of life who brings new life, new birth to those who open their hearts to him. Again, I want to invite you to to give yourself, maybe for the first time or maybe in a deeper way, to give yourself this morning to him. Not only to shining as a lamp in this world, but also to loving and serving the light. Not only to take your place alongside John as a witness, but to take your place at the feet of Jesus in worship and in service. 
more fully than ever before, to give your life over to the one who is over all, to resolve more fully than ever before, to live your life not for yourself, but for him, to open up each part of your life more fully to him, including those parts of your life that you have not given him access to up at this point, to say yes to him with the whole of your heart and the whole of your life open to him. What is something that could change in your life right now to make that more of a reality? What is a part of your life that you could bring more fully under his lordship this week? What is a step that you could take to let Jesus increase in your life? He must increase, I must decrease. He must become greater, I must become less. He must become more important, I must become less important. He must move into the center while I slip off into the sidelines. God, make it so of us. I want to invite our worship team to come on up now. And as I do, I want to invite you all as we come to our closing song uh, to join me in what may feel like a little bit of a risky step. We don't often give you a chance to do something publicly as an expression of what God is doing in your life. But we want to do that this morning. And, and not in a huge and dramatic way, but we want to give you this opportunity. During each of the last six Sundays, we have given you an opportunity to respond in new or renewed faith to Jesus. To open your life to him for the first time or more fully. So if, during this series, you have made a commitment to follow Jesus for the first time, or you've made a commitment to follow him more faithfully from this point forward, or if you have made a commitment to witness to him more faithfully from now on, or if you have asked him at any point in this series to increase in your life and that he would help you to decrease, then during this song, I want to invite you to stand while we're singing as a way of marking that commitment on your part. And then when we get to the closing stanza, we will be asked by the worship team to have all of us then stand at that point. This isn't about what anybody else is doing. This isn't about God's work in somebody else's life. This is about what God is doing in your life. This is just a chance for you to solidify any commitments that you have made before God in the last two months. To say to him, I meant it. I stand by my word. So with that invitation, would you please pray with me? And we'll continue on in a worship song that is a prayer of self-offering. Oh, Lord Jesus, King of heaven, hear our hearts this morning as we open them to you. We worship you and we open our lives to you. We are yours.